We all want to be seen and known and loved. And all of us, because of the fall, are born with a natural default predisposition or orientation, if you will, to get the good needs of our heart met in ways that don't actually satisfy and don't glorify God. Hey, hey, welcome to the Live Like It's True podcast, where we talk through some of the most astonishing stories in the Bible and how to live like those stories are true. I'm your host, Shannon Popkin, and my hope is that these conversations will inspire you to better know the story, share the story, and live the story. In this true story of the beginning series, we're looking at Genesis 1 through 3 and asking, How does the origin story in the front of our Bibles counter or correct the false narratives of the world? And once we're grasping this true story, then we're asking, how can we live like the story is true? Lori Krieg, welcome to Live Like It's True. Thank you. So glad to be with you and your audience. Yeah, I am so excited to have this conversation. Now, you and I first met through a mutual friend, Haley. Do you remember that? Um, yes. She yep. was a friend through Revive Our Hearts. She worked on our blogging team there. And so she's the one who first said, hey, you should meet Lori. She lives in your very same town. And um, so you and I kind of grew up in the same circles. And uh, it's great to be able to chat with you again today. Yeah. Oh, glad to, to engage this conversation with you guys. Yeah. Um, so on the Live Like It's True podcast, like we have just taken an entire series three months to talk through Genesis one through three. So we have talked through little by little paragraph by paragraph and asking like, okay, what is this story? Like God didn't give us a document for our origin story. Um, you know, like a statement, he gave us a story and the story has so much truth embedded into it. And so we've spent all this time talking about what is God saying and how can we live like this story is true? Um, but now with just several follow-up episodes, what we're doing is we're looking at one of the false narratives of the world and talking about how does this true story correct something that is largely accepted or embraced or even celebrated in the world. Um, and so we're going to, we did another episode with Kristen Clark with Girl, Defi- Girl Defined, and we talked about how sexuality is to be within marriage. But today I want to talk with you about like, what is that blueprint for marriage? And Mm -hmm. what about the person with same-sex attraction? Like, Mm -hmm. how does this work, right? For those who love Jesus and want to live by his design. So let me just introduce you formally a little bit. You are the president of Impossible Ministries, a teaching, Mm -hmm. podcasting, and coaching ministry. Um, Your mission is to equip the church with a gospel-centered approach to marriage and sexuality. And you serve on the board of directors for the Center of Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. Oh, you're earning a master's degree. I love it. From Wheaton Wheaton Graduate School in Evangelism and Leadership. And you've spoken all over the place, including a bunch of places here in Grand Rapids. You just spoke at, or you were interviewed at my Mm -hmm. former church, Ada Ada Bible Church. And I just heard such great things about that interview. Lori, thank you for sharing your life in this way. Yeah, you're so welcome. It's it's an honor. It's a terrible joy, is what I say. It's, it's <laughs> challenging and great. <laughs> oh, I hear you. Um, and so I also have to give a shout out to your book, An Impossible Marriage, which you co-authored mm-hmm. with your husband Matt. Yep. 
That was such a good read for me. I so enjoyed it. Thank you for writing that. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. So, all right, Lori, take us back to the beginning, like your story as a little girl, introduce us to little girl, Lori, Mm -hmm. (laughs) who loved Jesus um, with all your heart. Mm -hmm. And and tell us about how you first experienced same-sex attraction. Yeah. So I um, was born into a family that was loved Jesus, 80s and 90s in America. My dad was uh, very involved with the pro-life movement. We were, we were like on focus on the family. Like we were like super involved in like advocacy world and genuinely love Jesus. Yeah. Your your dad is Randy Heckman, right? Yeah. Yeah. I just grew up knowing his name somehow. I don't even know how I don't know. It was everywhere. (laughs) It was. Well, he did a lot. He he was a judge and he like made some controversial rulings in favor of life. So that was maybe how. But um, so I grew up kind of in an activist home, but really just like you show and you live um your witness for Jesus. And it wasn't just skin deep, like it was as deep as anyone can do, you know, we're always kind of learning and growing. Um, But I remember at a young age, five years old, I felt this draw toward other girls that I didn't sense was normal, quote unquote, like that normal girls didn't feel this toward other girls. And it wasn't, it's hard to even use the word attraction because you're five and it's just weird, (laughs) but boys were like my brothers. I have five brothers and six sisters, but my five brothers, like I scrapped with them, you know, I'd like fight with them. And I'd also play GI Joes and Legos and maybe it was more tomboyish, but it just like, they were not intriguing to me. Boys were not, they were smelly and dirty and I played GI Joes with them. Um, so I felt that, but growing up in eighties and nineties, moral majority, evangelical America, a lot of the language when it came to LGBT world was not, this is your version of broken sexuality that you need to surrender to the Lordship of Christ. Like everyone else is called to do. Mm -hmm. No, no, no. The language that I at least interpreted in my little girl heart was there is a war on marriage. That was like a big deal. There was like a marriage war. And it felt like there was, what I heard was there was this homosexual agenda. I'm using air quotes right now because yeah. I wouldn't recommend <laughs> using that language. Yeah. Uh, homosexual agenda that's going to like come and murder babies in their sleep or something. Like that, it was that extreme. Hmm. So it wasn't like, oh boy, I sure feel safe to share this struggle in the church. It was like, no, you got to shut that mess down. And right. so I really did. Um But if I may say, underneath those desires was a heart filled with good needs to be seen and known and loved. Mm -hmm. That's what we all have. We can see that in creation. You're studying Genesis 1 through 3. Like we Mm -hmm. all want to be seen and known and loved. And all of us, because of the fall, are born with a natural default predisposition or orientation, if you will, to get the good needs of our heart met in ways that don't actually satisfy and don't glorify God. Absolutely. We are all born that way. Mm-hmm. And that was one way that I wanted to get those good needs met, that I was perhaps born because of the fall that way. But I also had some church acceptable sins, like people pleasing and performing, which mm-hmm. is just an ugly and nasty. And Jesus had to die just same level of death for those sins as he did for these same sex which when they're just temptation, that's not sin yet. That's just temptation. But when it goes to sin, it to die just as hard for that. So I shut that mess down till college and I'm Christian 
at Christian University and the only language in the early 2000s now, only storyline for quote unquote homosexuals. Again, I wouldn't recommend using that because that doesn't describe everyone's experience. I'd recommend using the language the person wants to be called. But that's a story for another day. <laughs> but it was the lang- the storyline was people were homosexual and doing lots of drugs and sleeping around. And then they come to Jesus and they're magically straight. And so here I was like genuinely love Jesus as much as I knew how and genuinely following, serving him. And yet I found myself in this secret same-sex relationship with another Christian girl. Well, my dad was a pastor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it felt um, horrible. Mm-hmm. And yet also like the thing that the narrative that many Christian camps can often avoid sharing is not everything about same-sex relationships is just a dumpster fire of sin. Mm-hmm. Like there's good aspects to it, but it's not God's best path of flourishing. Mm-hmm. And my heart was at war. Mm. I can pause here if you have any questions. Yeah. Well, I just have a couple of things I wanted to follow sure. up on. Sure. Um, well, first of all, you're people pleasing and you're, you were amazing because I remember you were, who did you play? Oh yeah. Brooke Morrison on Brooke. down Gilead lane. Yes. Down Gilead lane. When you interviewed me on your podcast, hole in my heart, yeah. I discovered that I was like, what? Yes. It's that I voice. Know. Like you yep. were just doing all these amazing things for Jesus. Right. Yeah. I can just picture that. I'll bet that had a lot of perfectionism and people pleasing. And we talk a lot about that on this podcast because I struggle sure. with all of the above. Right. Um, but I just want to ask our listeners to just take inventory. Like, is there any one of us who has not struggled with brokenness in our sexuality and relationships? Like that's all of us collectively mm-hmm. where we go to get our needs met. Like you were saying, we all have these good desires and yep. we've all looked, you know, whether it's think of yourself as a teenager and who you dated and what you did or in your Mm -hmm. marriage and how you go to your husband instead of God for what you need, or you try to control him or all those different things. Like these are all examples of us reaching out for good needs that need to be met, but in the wrong way. Yeah. Yeah. So, So here you are in college and you are at war because you have two desires in your heart going on. One you love the Lord. You love mm-hmm. the Lord Jesus. And the other is what you would now say is a wrong desire. Did it feel wrong then? Or it did feel wrong because you mm-hmm. had no category for it, right? Yeah. I mean, the thing about idols, because really that's another word we could use here, right? Like the thing about running to stuff instead of, and people instead of Jesus, is it, it does scratch the itch of our heart for a bit. But kind of like a bug bite, like you just need more and more. Mm-hmm. Like we can run to performance, but you're never, you become, like it says, it's first or second Peter, you become a slave to whatever controls you. Like we are, we get enslaved to these things that become our idols. So it felt good to be with my girlfriend, but it also felt like she was never enough. And that was annoying. Mm-hmm. I also believed what the Bible said about God's design for marriage. So it was both conviction about God's design for marriage, as well as just kind of the brass tacks of Mm. idols don't satisfy. And it's annoyingly true. Mm. 
Okay. So there you are struggling. How did you get from there to being married to Matt? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> There's right. a jump. <laughs> There's a leap. So I reached a real point of suicidality mm. where I was going to either kill myself or come out as a lesbian atheist. Now that sounds maybe extreme, but truly I believed that in order to be in the church, because the only narrative was you were gay. Now you're straight. And I was like, I don't know how to become more Christian to become straight. Like I was like, I'm like a better Christian than everyone down this pew, which I recognize as pride. Yeah. But <laughs> like, I'm like a super Christian. I um, didn't know how to become more Christian to become straight, but I thought in order to follow Jesus, I had to be straight. And so I didn't know how to do those things. And so I was like, well, the only solution to satisfy this church world is to kill myself. Like, that's really what I thought that they would want. Or I come out as a lesbian atheist and I say atheist because I really did believe what the Bible said to be true, but I didn't know how to live that out. So because of my suicide, my suicidal ideation, I went to see a counselor and by the grace of God, she knew how to walk not only with this suicidal ideation, but with someone like me who wrestled with these attractions and she did not seek to make me straight. She understood that there were good needs underneath what I was running toward in my people pleasing and my performing and in this aspect. Mm -hmm. And she would ask me questions that were so bananas to me then, but they were extremely helpful as I reflected on them. And she'd say, Lori, what is it? If you picture the ideal, perfect woman, what is it about her that you like? And I'm like, I'm not telling you that you're like 60. Like we're not talking about what I'm attracted to, but Shannon, I kid you not. What words came tumbling out of my mouth instead of sexual words were heart words. I want to be seen and known and loved. And she looked me in the eye, which is the antidote to shame. And she said, those are good needs. You're just running to the wrong place. Now the right place was not to a dude. That's idolatry too. Mm -hmm. And I said, because I was sassy then, I have no more sass in me. I've been sanctified. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I, said, I said, well, the answer, don't tell me that Jesus is where I need to go because I know Jesus and I'm like a super Christian. So no, don't say Jesus. And she's like, well, it's Jesus. But, and I didn't bite her head off, but I did with this journeying with her, I, she taught me that there are actually a lot of barriers between those good needs to be seen and known and loved and the need meter of my soul, Jesus. There was like pain from the church pain. Yeah, sure. Sin that I'd done, but there was also a lot of like trauma and misunderstanding of God and lies and wounds, like, like garbage we all have. Yeah. And she didn't come alongside with like, orientation change therapy to try and make me straight. She came alongside me with the love of Jesus and good old fashioned spiritual disciplines. Mm -hmm. The most powerful one for me being lament. Mm -hmm. I did not know I could take pain, including pain from the church and homophobic attitudes toward people like me. Mm -hmm. Like, sure, we can hold to God's design for marriage, but if we hold it like a Pharisee, we're sinning. Mm -hmm. And so she, um, really helped me learn how to grieve. And I experienced God's love in the deepest places of my heart for the first time. And like Ephesians three says that God's love empowers us. God's love empowers us not to become straight, but to die to self daily. Mm -hmm. And so 
I got excited. I was like full of love. I was like in love with Jesus. And I was graduated from college. I was a newspaper reporter. And I was like one of those, I was a happy single person. And I sensed God's hand on my shoulder saying, I have someone for you. And I was like, no, <laughs> but the thing about God, <laughs> if he asked for a part of your life, he actually wants all of your life. And, and when it comes to marriage or singleness, which are equally valuable modes, we fulfill the mission to make disciples. Mm -hmm. They're both valuable. Mm -hmm. Every gay person that, you know, or same sex attractive person, you know, LGBT they're this, my story is not a prescription for them. Anything that looks like Jesus do that, mm -hmm. but marriage is not a guarantee or owed to them, but God knows marriage or singleness, what will bless us the most and sanctify us the best and therefore give God the most glory. So he called me, not everyone like me to marriage. And he had my heart fall in love, not with all men, because that would be weird, but mm -hmm. with one man, Matt. And um, it'll be 14 years this month. That's amazing. Yeah. I really appreciated in Aaron Buer's sermon on Sunday, you know, you were a guest there, but he, he really talked about how there are a lot of LGBT Christians yeah. who live out celibacy and they yeah. are dying to themselves day by day. And, you know, for them, that's what God has called them to for you. He's called you to this marriage. Yeah. Um, you call it an impossible marriage in your mm -hmm. book. And, um, and yet he's being glorified in all these different ways. I so appreciate yeah. that. So, um, one more little question I have for you about your story is like, tell us what happened after your daughter was born and how yeah. this experience affected your marriage. Yeah. So, uh, after our second daughter was born about seven, eight years into marriage, it triggered a memory, a repressed, suppressed memory of trauma that had happened to me when I was younger. And I couldn't even remember the specifics, um, but there may be those in your audience who have encountered sexual assault or sexual abuse. And it's interesting if God calls you to marriage and if God blesses you with kids, when your kids turn the age that something happened to you, this is not uncommon where mm. it just wakes up that part of your brain. Wow. And so when she was born, it just, it, my, the daughter just older than her turned an age that I was when something happened to me. And so I just shut down, um, in a lot of ways, like I'd be in certain rooms in our house and I would just shut down, go catatonic. And even though Matt was not my perpetrator, because he was a dude and my perpetrator was a dude, um, his maleness reminded me of him. And so, so this repressed memory though resurfaces, I don't know how to process it. This is like all shocking to me. And it magnetizes to these attractions to the same sex that I had been happily surrendering to Jesus for the previous seven years. Like, sure, there were some bumps in our marriage related to that, but honestly, it wasn't as astronomical as some might think. Hmm. But those magnetize together and produce the fruit of a question called, what do you want? And I asked myself that and it was, do I even want to stay in this marriage? Like, what am I doing here? Uh, and that was the beginning of our book we wrote. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and thank you so much for writing it. Um, yeah. you alternate between your perspective and Matt's and we get to mm -hmm. go with you to some really dark places and yeah. 
ultimately on the other side, um, God did what, what would, how would you summarize on the other side of that brutal journey, which I do not regret journeying it at all, um, was really understanding what's the purpose of marriage and what's the purpose of sex in marriage. If I was not gay, same-sex attracted, LGBT, and if I did not experience the trauma that I did, I don't think I would have I would understand marriage like I do and be such the celebrator of it that I am. <laughs> it's so funny. Like I should not be. But I'm like marriage's <laughs> biggest fan now, even though I'm a default if I struggle with lust, still it's toward women. But I'm so grateful for that horrific journey because I'm just a big fan of the gospel picture that marriage and sex and marriage is. That's so beautiful. So let's talk about Genesis and how that, how did that help you? Like, how did the origin story that we see in Genesis one through two help you find your way forward with finding your way back toward intimacy with Matt? What, what What role did the story play for you? I mean, it really, Genesis one and two, I'm sure you've talked about this on the podcast, but it's such like, here is the, the map. Here's the roadmap for how marriage is supposed to look, how I'm setting up family. And really it's that story is repeated over and over throughout the Bible. So if I was to summarize what Genesis one and two and how that plays out in the arc plot of the Bible, what that did in my marriage is the whole Bible to quote Christopher West, who's quoting Pope John Paul II, who wrote Theology of the Body, which is like an amazing book on treaties. I think that's probably what I should say on um, how the gospel is written into our bodies and how we see that marriage. Mm. But he says the Bible can be summed up in four words. God will marry us. Hmm. So if we see in the garden, like even not even honing in on um, Adam and Eve in particular, because Adam and Eve and marriage, their difference, their sex difference, and their union that produces the fruit of kids, ideally, is not the ultimate picture. The ultimate picture is God wants to be one with us, with Mm -hmm. creation Mm -hmm. and produce the fruit of disciples. Yeah. And so that, that reality, when I looked at that through Ephesians five, or if you look at Jesus repeating really Genesis one 27 and two 24 in Matthew 19, that vision of God wants union with us. And marriage is a picture of how he's pursuing dusty old Adam, us, Mm. that, that theology saved our marriage. Wow. Yeah. In our episode with Mary Cassian, we talked about how Jesus on the cross, his, his side was split open and and there's, you know, imagery that parallels with Adam and his side being split open Mm -hmm. um, so that Eve was created from Adam and for him. And so Mm -hmm. Christ's side is split open. And that is when the church is created. Yeah. And right after Jesus raises from the dead, then we have 
Pentecost. Yeah. So that is like the, the, the bride and the groom coming together and babies are born. Like the church is born and there were 3000 converts that first day of Pentecost. So that's, that's really the imagery here is I, I said repeatedly throughout this series, like I wear a wedding ring and my wedding ring is real and valuable, but mm-hmm. it is, it's a sort of a metaphor for something for the marriage, you know? So like if mm-hmm. I throw the the ring down, which I'm not proud to say I have done that before um, <laughs> and throw it down like a worthless trinket, I'm not just yeah. disrespecting the ring. I'm disrespecting the marriage. So yeah. in the same way that my ring represents the marriage, marriage represents marriage is a metaphor for yep. this bigger picture, this overarching story of God will marry us. Is that? Yeah, that's the four words. Is that right? Yes. God will marry us. So the story of the Bible opens with a, with a marriage and it ends with a marriage. And so the whole point of marriage, one way to say it is if we didn't have marriage in our world, a world without marriage, like it'd be really hard for us to relate to the reality of God wanting to marry us. Like, how would we know what faithfulness is or mm-hmm. what that sort of relationship means? Like, yeah. how would we, how would we process it? Is, was that the sort of things that you were thinking through as you were struggling with even staying in your marriage? Yeah, I really was starving for a deeper theological meaning and reason to stay in my marriage. Cause really I said this theology saved our marriage. I would say it gave, it did. And it also, it just gave us the energy to work. Mm. I was so, and I still am barfingly sick of marriage books that are. And so you need to just do the right thing and submit and respect and love. like, it's so thin and it's mm. so just anecdotal and like, give me the reason why. Mm -hmm. And so that I was thinking, I didn't know I needed that though. I didn't know I needed that like juicy steak of theology in Mm -hmm. order to even look at the more practical pieces that make marriage and relationships work. Yeah. Let me read what you wrote on page 90 to 91 in your book, impossible marriage. You said, if we stare at sex, to meet a soul need in us, we will be left starving for more. If we diminish sex to a physical only event, we will miss out on experiencing a gospel rich metaphor. If we look through the metaphor of sex to see, see it as a message God wants to send us and to our spouses of his desire for a holistic union with us, sex can be good. Yeah. Isn't that nuts? Mm-hmm. When I was I was teaching somewhere recently, and I said, before we talk about LGBT and how we can engage this topic, I need us to assess the lay of the land, which is we're all sexually broken. And then, you know, I talk about pornography stats, blah, 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 blah. And then I'm like, I bring up the stat that 84% of Christian women uh, have sex with their husbands so that they'll do more around the house. <laughs> it's funny, right? right? And then if if my husband was speaking with me, he'd be like, and 84% of men do stuff more on the house so that they could have more sex. Right. right. (laughs) So, Uh and we, right. It's funny. We laugh at it, Mm -hmm. but that's brokenness. Mm -hmm. Sex as a transaction is brokenness Mm -hmm. because sex. Okay. If we just, we just did this huge, beautiful gospel picture of what marriage is, right. 
but what's sex in marriage? And all of a sudden it becomes this like physical exchange of goods and okay, here, I'll give you this so that you can get off my back and okay, I'll give you whatever. So you can, whatever that's, is that's how we treat God. Like if mm. sex is this, sex is telling the other person and being told through the other person, this is how much God loves you. Mm. This is how close he, he wants to be one with you. And if you're only doing it in a physical, all right, here you go. Here's your every three days, whatever, or once a week or once a month or whatever, once a year, it doesn't matter. I'm not judging. Um, <laughs> but uh, if we're treating it that way as a physical only thing, we're totally missing out on what God wants to say to us through this act, which to even get to a place where it feels like a holistic connection, you got to do a lot before that. Mm -hmm. And you got to do a lot after that yeah. in order to stay connected, which is the point. Mm -hmm. If it's a picture of how much God loves us, if we're just like, okay, God, here's my body. I'll go to church. Here's my money. Now shut mm -hmm. up and leave me alone. Yeah. That's transactional, right? transactional mm -hmm. that's not how it's supposed to be with god and that's not what sex is supposed to be yeah so i love that you fought for that that like you went after that juicy steak to help <laughs> yeah. give it purpose you know like yeah. to help put sex in its right place in your marriage but i want to talk for a moment about shame yeah because you and Matt both experienced shame in your marriage. And, um, you know, we talked extensively about Adam and Eve eating the fruit and their broken relationship and then hiding in shame and being sent from the garden. Chapter three, verse 24 says he drove the man out. I'm just wondering how like your experience with shame, mm. how, how did you work through that shame? And, and reconcile it with this story of Adam and Eve feeling shame. Like what, what's going on there? Why are they feeling shame? Yeah. Where'd that come from? And how does that help us with our marriages? Wow. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a good question. They eat the fruit and then they hide. It says because of their nakedness. Mm -hmm. So even though they ate the fruit, they didn't hide because they were convicted of their sin they hid because they felt this whole body. I'm going to use the word self-hatred, but just shame, like just horribleness about themselves. And I mentioned this with my counselor when she looked me in the eye and I said, that's the antidote to shame. That's what God does to us. He sought Adam and Eve and he seeks us in the midst of our mess, even when we're hiding for the way wrong reason. Mm -hmm. And he's the one we don't need to hide from. But he says, where are you? Mm -hmm. And it's not that he was like, oh, shoot, where'd they go? Oh, man, mm -hmm. I was over yeah. there. No. He he sought them and he looked looked at them and that removes shame. And instead of even shaming their shame, <laughs> and, and, and even before he punishes them, yeah, he God is, them. he's so kind to yeah. clothe them. Yeah. So how that plays out in my pieces of my story. I mean, shame is such a battle. It's so sneaky and mean, mm -hmm. but when, um, after you'll hear this between chapter one and two, if you listen to or read our book is I come home from this silent retreat where I'm convicted by that. I need to stay in my marriage. I was going to leave and, or is really considering it. And I come back and I wake up in my own heart to these files. I've been filing away 
in my heart for reasons I should leave Matt. Hmm. Ooh, if I had a dollar for the amount of women and men who are secretly filing those away, hmm. I would have some money because we can do that. Like, here's my reasons why I don't have to be as close or I don't have to whatever, or maybe I could leave. And I had been filing that away, which really is a turning away from the covenant. I wasn't mm-hmm. cheating on Matt. I didn't have like, I wasn't watching porn. I wasn't anything of that, but it was just like, I, my eyes were away from him and considering what if I did leave a lot of what ifs. I call them the what if like candies that you just suck on and be like, oh, what if you weren't here? What mm-hmm. if I wasn't here? Yeah. So I come back. And I tell him what was going on with me at the silent retreat. And I confess to him about these what if candies or these files I've been filing away of reasons to leave. And I fought in that moment. It was good conviction, which we call godly shame. Mm-hmm. So that was good. That feels like a pinprick. But I was fighting against uh, toxic shame, which is not a pinprick in your heart. That's a whole body self-hatred. That's from mm-hmm. the enemy. That's like the covering your body and like with fig leaf situation. So I was like, oh, I want to just, I hate myself. I f- was fighting that with everything. I was saying in conviction and then this godly, so there's conviction and then there's godly shame, mm-hmm. which I felt when I looked into Matt's eyes and saw him heartbroken. Mm-hmm. And I had, there was this part of me in my head, whether it was from the Holy Spirit or not, but it was right, is it was, it's right for Matt to feel this pain. Now, just, so do you hear that combo and how that could yeah. be such a setup for like hating myself, him hating himself, but me going, feeling conviction, the pinprick, fighting the battle of self-hatred, and yet also the godly shame, how we define it is feeling the weight of what we did so that we don't repeat it. And so looking at Matt, I felt the weight of my sin. Ooh, it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just thinking about, I don't know if the, if this exactly fits Lori, but what if Adam and Eve, you know, it says they were driven from the garden. What if they got outside the garden and they were like, oh, this is good. You know, <laughs> Yeah, I'm cool with this. Like, this is pretty good. It's not as good as the garden, but like they're, they're yeah. like having that apathy about there being a distance in the marriage relationship or mm-hmm. storing those files or sucking on mm-hmm. your candy mm-hmm. and considering it like, this is like a good thing, this separation, like that yeah. flies in the face of this story. Like we're supposed to feel agony as they are driven yeah. from that. Yeah. Garden. And the whole rest of the story is about restoring us. God's beloved to Eden and to the oneness, to the relationship. So what encouragement do you give to somebody who is sucking on that candy, filling those files? What, what help can you give them? Yeah. I mean, sometimes you need just like a cold bucket of water on your head, uh, which is, I mean, I'm walking, I do a lot of coaching and I'm walking some people through divorces, through separation, through real brutal stuff. And a theme I keep saying is the spouse who's leaving for whatever, whatever reason, hasn't really thought through the devastation that the tearing apart Mm. causes. Now, I'm not talking that I'm not saying all divorce is wrong. You know, there's infidelity, et cetera, like abuse. Please go talk to someone. I'm talking about when it's like, well, this is not what I want anymore. 
which is would have been me. Even though when you're same sex attracted, gay, whatever in a relationship like I am, the world gives you a good out of marriage free card pretty quickly. Not going to lie. But I doesn't just because the world does that doesn't mean it's true. So the bucket of cold water is (laughs) sometimes just think it through, go Mm -hmm. to logic and be like, what is this going to cost? And you'll hear that in my first chapter is I'm like, uh, but the fantasy is so fantastical. Like, I know that if I left Matt and like found the ideal perfect woman, at some point she's going to drive me nuts. And girls are actually really selfish. And there's a <laughs> lot of stuff like that would be in the cost on my kids. And oh yeah, I actually mm. do like Matt. I just, mm-hmm. I don't think I want to be in this marriage anymore. And yeah. so sometimes I think just like the cold, hard facts. And then the next piece is be strong and courageous and tell someone Mm -hmm. it's so easy to put on a face, especially when it comes to marriage. So easy. And our church culture just cult like cultivates it. And you don't want to be categorized as like, Oh, you're the one that has to go to the marriage retreats. Yikes. Mm -hmm. Let's normalize that marriage is hard. Yes. That's one of the things I wanted to ask you about, because, um, you know, we talked a lot about how God's, how gender reflects God's communal nature. So he is like the most surprising part of Genesis 127 is God said, let us make man, you know, he is plural. And so, and and what we notice in those verses, um, there's something about plurality that reflects God. So there's something about community Mm. that God didn't just make one person. He made two. So I'm just Mm. curious, like how community with other people, as you walked this very hard path, what role did Mm -hmm. that play in helping you and Matt to image God? Well, you know, both individually and in your marriage. That's a good question. So when it came to community with our marriage journey, it really, I mean, it's so scary. I just exhorted everyone to be honest and normalize marriage suffering, but I understand that it's terrifying because mm-hmm. not everyone is great at walking with people yeah. and not like, and it was scary for, I don't want to say this is harder than everyone, but it, there is a level of challenge when it comes to being gay, same-sex attracted, LGBTQ person in a marriage because Christians have a lot of opinions mm-hmm. and about your existence, let alone your marriage. And so even with that, we really were sensitive to, and if I can encourage people listening now to do this, I was hypersensitive to how do my friends respond to pastors having affairs, to XYZ person doing this sexual sin? Are my friends gasping and clutching their pearls and judging, like being judgmental? Mm-hmm. Or are they grieving and saying, yeah, man, there's more of a grief and less of a disgust? I don't see Jesus disgusted with sinners. That, that, like I keep thinking about this. Where do I see disgust? <laughs> but it's yeah. tenderness toward the broken, a bruised reed. He will not break. Well, and look at Genesis three, God did not come yeah. stomping through the garden. Um, right. he didn't come like, look at you. What have you done? No, it was, he came with gentle questions, engaging yeah. relationship and yeah, remorse, like sadness, mm-hmm. you know, they were the ones pointing and blaming and God was the one and still is the one who 
is pursuing relationship. Yeah. Wellness. Yeah. And that's not the tone of our day. Uh, the tone of our day is disgust and ridicule and scoffing. So I would say to be a safe person, I would encourage you to watch your words all the time because you do not know who around you is wrestling and the Holy Spirit's always listening to you. Told. Yeah. Can I say one more thing? Um, in my book, Comparison Girl, I talked about how we cannot communicate disgust without saying something about ourselves in the process, because disgust mm-hmm. is always looking down. Disgust always compares down from an elevated position. So yeah, that's right. So just judge. Yeah. Our, our words and our attitudes, like who do we think we are, right? That yeah. we would be, oh, that is disgusting toward any sort of sin, because we're all, you know, sin is a disease and we've all got it. Right. So yeah, yeah just to underline what you just said, but go, go ahead and yes. talk about community and So that's how we can kind of signal we're seeking to be a safe person. Mm. And then as the person who's looking for community in the midst of your whatever marriage suffering, singleness suffering, whatever, whatever's going on, I would encourage um, just be courageous and take the next step. And if the person you share with stinks, (laughs) not everyone's going to stink. That's it's hard. Mm. You can grieve that, but don't give up. Try another person. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I remember reading about the story where you went out to dinner and mm-hmm. you gave your marriage, like you're with this other couple who's been mm-hmm. encouraging you. They know you're struggling. They know the, the story and you gave your marriage. What, how, what of a percentage? Point, like- point six. <laughs> I gave it 0.6% of hope of making it through. And, and they just said, okay, we'll work with that 0.6%. And yep. kept encouraging you. And I, that was, that was a, a critical part of your journey. Yep. So Lori, um, you know, I mean, there are so many false narratives about marriage and sexuality today. How do you see those being corrected in this story of Genesis one through three? If there's anything else that we haven't said. I think the only thing I would actually underline from what you said, was just that emphasis of grace that we see God do to Adam and Eve. Like mm-hmm. he did not clutch his pearls. God is <laughs> pearls. <laughs> mm-hmm. And oh my word, you guys, you even know that you just destroyed everything. Yeah. <laughs> he's serious about sin, but he's also still tender and compassionate. He's making mm-hmm. the clothes for them. He's providing a place for them. He's, he's not flooding the world and restarting right then. Like he walked with Adam and Eve, his compassion, he's strong, he's merciful and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. And I think a lot of us can be quick to anger and zero love. We say, I love you, but I hate your sin. And I'm just always so confused when people say that because I'm like, have you ever even talked to them? What do you mean you love them? Yeah. Love is patient and kind. So in this season of the world, it's easy to say, the whole world's going to hell in a handbasket and there are so many false narratives and you're not, we are not wrong in saying that. But I really would encourage those of us who love Jesus to, instead of being judgmental, which is looking down on, like you said, to understand why are these narratives so appealing to the world right now? What is it about this person what is it about this identity that this person is drawn to, whether they're born that way or not, doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you what, what I keep finding is people looking to be seen and known and loved. Mm-hmm. 
And the only place they can actually find that is with Jesus. Mm-hmm. So this can feel real scary in 2023 to be in this time and in this place. But if we know the gospel and we know for a fact that everyone was made by God and for God, and we know for a fact that they have these good needs and we all run to garbage, it's less scary. And it's more like, oh, yeah. how can I come alongside you? Yeah. In my episode with Portia Collins, we talked about how as God is cursing the serpent in that same verse, he is giving us the gospel. It's the first Mm -hmm. mention of the gospel that Mm -hmm. the seed of the woman, her offspring will crush the serpent. And so we get that first, like there is hope and what that glimmer is in its fullness is Jesus on the cross. And so if that's the story we're embracing of sin is awful, it's destructive, but there's hope in Jesus, then, I mean, that corrects so many, it corrects how we look at each other. We're all in the same position. We need Jesus. I love the fact that you quoted Milton Vincent. Yeah. um, The gospel primer exposed by the cross. I love that quote. It's something like, why would I be ashamed of confessing my sins to others when the cross has already told everyone that I'm a dreadfully sinful person? Right. It's just, let's get over ourselves. Yeah. What's that quote that you always use um, at the end of your hole in my heart podcast? It's Tim Keller that Mm -hmm. the gospel is, I am more loved than I imagine and yet more sinful than I believe. Mm. And then we ask everybody, how is that good news still today for you? That just shakes us up from all of our perfectionism. It's so true. So Lori, how are you living like it's true? How are you living like the true story of the Bible is the true story? Probably the most obvious one is using whatever platform God has entrusted to me to preach the good news, the gospel, as it appears through marriage and sexuality mm-hmm. in a time of our world where it really is needed. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it comes to the cost of lost friends, family has had challenges with this mm-hmm. lost church churches. And yet it's nothing compared to like actually persecuted people in China, Sudan, mm-hmm. everywhere. So mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to throw a persecution flag because that's just not true. Mm-hmm. But it's so stinking worth it. Because as much as I just highlighted some of the negative, like I'm hanging out last night with my friend Kat, who when I met her five, six years ago, she was going to transition to male and marry her girlfriend. And now she's running after Jesus and discipling others. Like you just can't script this stuff. Like you just (laughs) be obedient and you just see, like you scatter seeds and some people give you the finger and some people follow Jesus. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's just the way it goes. Yeah. And that's, I think the highest cost. And then to loving Matt and loving my kids. And mm-hmm. those are the things that are not, you know, posted online or seen by anyone, but Jesus and that, but that's living like it's true is that they have value and they're imprinted with the image of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Living like it's true is costly. I like that you highlighted yeah. that it's costly and especially in our day and age, it's costly. It sure is. It's worth it. Yep. It sure is. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. It's been great. Thank you, Shannon. Thanks for joining me for this true story of the beginning series. I hope you'll take some time alone with God and with your Bible open to Genesis 1 through 3. Drink in the true story for yourself, this true story that you're in. 
let it reframe your story with the truth. To help you work through this narrative, I've put some tools together for you in my free Live Like It's True workbook. The workbook is particularly designed to help you work through the narratives or the stories in the Bible. It'll help you sort through how the true story of Genesis 1-3 through refutes the false narratives in the world. You can find a link for your free workbook in the show notes, along with links to some of the various other resources we've been mentioning and recommending. Many of these resources are actually written by our guests in this season, including Nancy Guthrie, Mary Cassian, Courtney Doctor, and more. Are you enjoying this podcast? If so, would you be willing to rate and review? This helps us widen our reach and helps us to serve others as they're able to find the show. Also, if you have questions or ideas for me, I would love to hear from you. Thanks so much to my producer, Maria Lyons, and my son, Cade Popkin, for providing all of the music that you hear here on the show. And thanks most of all to you for tuning in. It is my joy and privilege to serve you. And now it's time to go live like it's true.